What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Appreciate everybody who listens to this podcast. Uh, we're going to start today. I got to start today because John Wilner and I have found something. We, we I, guess, I don't want to say we don't agree on this, Wilner, but I watch a lot of movies. I go to see movies in the theater. I like going to see movies in the theater. I like sitting in a theater, eating popcorn, drinking a soda. I know it's not good for me. Don't at me. But I uh, I like seeing movies. If someone's going to spend $100 million to make a movie, I like going to see it. And I, lo and behold, I'm, I'm talking and thinking about this air movie, the story of Michael Jordan and Phil Knight and how that all came together, Nike and Jordan. And uh, it turns out I find out something about you, Wilner. You, you're not a movie buff. You're not a person who goes to the theater a lot and i want to know why well i like movies but i it's it's a time factor and also uh you know a kid factor when i go to movies it's often to see kid movies uh (laughs) it's been a while since i went to see an adult you know a a, a movie for adults i went to um puss in boots the latest puss in boots movie really good by the way pretty entertaining really good movie go see it i rated that at 88 on my one to 100 scale uh, I think nice. if you're, I think if you're an adult, you can go see that movie because it's got a lot of humor in it, a lot of inside jokes. It's not just for the kiddies. No, no, it's not. It was, it was quite entertaining. The last movie, well, actually, uh, I rent some movies every once in a while. Last week, you know, I got a COVID booster because it'd been like a year, and as usual, the thing floored me. So yep. the next day, I was like in a fetal position. So I watched. Um, I turned on a movie when I watched Spotlight, which is just awesome. Yeah, you know? great movie. Great, great uh, especially great journalist movie. Yeah, everybody wants to talk about, you know, the movies that win Oscars and stuff, but there's a couple movies I've seen recently in the theaters that uh, that I really like. I mean, the Tom Hanks movie, A Man Called Otto, is fantastic. If, if, uh, if listeners get a chance to see that movie, I think it's highly underrated. Go see it. Um, uh, I'm exposing myself as somebody who goes to the theater a lot. In fact... You know, I've talked about this before, Wilner. You know, I even have the Regal Cinema's regulator soda cup that they sold 20 years ago <laughs> for 20 bucks. Lifetime $1 refills. I mean, they're losing money on me because I don't even like soda anymore. I just get the refill because I know I'm getting over on them by getting the refill. But go see A Man Called Auto or rent it if you are if you happen to be home and having a chance to see it. It's not a kid's movie. It's got some heavy stuff in it, but... I think it's rich uh, with material, and I I was a little bit surprised that Tom Hanks get uh, more Oscar love, and it didn't get more nominations. You're you are a cultured individual, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know if I'm cultured, but what, I'm at the theater. I, I am. I do want to know about this Air movie, you know, because I think that that's you know obviously the Nike piece is so important to all of sports. But what do you know about this thing? I don't know much. Yeah, I talked to Sonny Vaccaro this week about you know his role. Like he's obviously thrilled that Matt Damon's playing him in the movie. Like if you and I are making a movie about this podcast, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon playing us, not the worst thing for our brand here, right? So Sonny Vaccaro really excited. Eighty-three year old Sonny Vaccaro excited that Matt Damon played him. He said they get mostly got it right. He liked uh, maybe there's a little more cussing, uh, you know, on his behalf. The movie's rated R for people who are interested in seeing it. It's uh, largely because of the profanity. But hearing a lot of positive things about Ben Affleck's portrayal of Phil Knight and the story in general, just uh, being such a strong story. Also, um, I you know, told that Viola Davis 
the actress who plays Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, in the in the film, steals the show. She's on camera for like 15, 20 minutes, but uh, apparently Viola Davis is just fantastic. And and Michael Jordan's mother played this key role. Like, you know, they're trying to woo Jordan and get him to Beaverton, Oregon, of all places, to help, you know, talk about, you know, his his future. And Michael Jordan's going, like, where is Beaverton? And where, you know, what do you, who, what is this company? And, and all of a sudden, uh, Viola Davis played the key role, apparently, and Jordan's mother uh, played the key role in bringing her son to Beaverton to meet with Phil Knight and Sonny Vaccaro and the team at Nike. So I'm hearing a lot, like, there's a lot of buzz about it here in the state of Oregon because I, it hits close to home. I know Nike is screening the movie for some employees and people are excited to see it, to see how much truth is in it. And it just becomes another piece of Phil Knight's legacy, right? Are there other movies about Phil? Just that there was a 30 for 30 uh, about Sonny Vaccaro and Soul Man. Uh, and then Phil, Phil did the Shoe Dog book that came out oh, a couple right. years ago. And I just think it resonates with people because I think people in this region feel like they've watched the arc of the story. And, you know, yeah. everybody's got a Phil Knight story, they, uh, some brush that they had with him or watching him in his, uh, you know, pursuit of, you know, national championships at Oregon and the investment he's made at Oregon and other places. But um, I think there's just a lot of general interest in what is this story? How good is it? And all the reviews that are coming out are, are uh, raving about the film. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait and see before I offer my thumbs up, thumbs down or my rating. But uh, I'm going to run out to a theater and see it as soon as I can. Do you get butter, butter on your popcorn? No butter, man. That's I, I look it, the, the popcorn is unhealthy enough. Right. But I, I did this, Wilner. Like I went out because I love movie theater popcorn so much. I went out and bought a real industrial-sized movie theater popcorn machine several years ago. And then I went to the kids who were working behind the counter, and I said, <laughs> let me see the kernel. What are you using? And they told me, and let me see what you're using for salt. They use a little uh, salt-butter combination that they put on the, uh, the popcorn that they actually pour into the hopper before they pop it that gives it the flavor and the color that you see and the smell that you see that you get when you get inside the theater. And yes, I'm geeking out on this and people are learning that uh, a lot about me in this conversation, but I, I, uh, I could Great tell. reporting. I mean, that's, that's a true reporter <laughs> figuring out exactly what goes into the yeah. movie theater popcorn. Well, <laughs> I was in Regal cinemas. Like, you know, it was right before the pandemic. And I said to him, Hey, uh, you changed the kernel. And the employee was like, how did you know that? And I was like, it's it's chewier. It's not as you know, it's not as crunchy and crisp as as it was before. But I mean, it's a science. The, the you know, they've got it down at the theater. I mean, the minute you walk in, what are they doing? They're pumping out that popcorn smell. You got to have it. And then the previews have that Coca Cola poured and the popcorn popping, and they make you you know make you feel like you're missing out if you're not getting it. So yes, I plunk down the eight bucks and get the popcorn, and I bring my regulator cup and I get the one dollar refill. Uh, that, I, that I have lifetime for, and uh, and I, I have at it. And uh, this is something we do even with our kids. We'll uh, we'll make a date night out of it, and my sister will watch the uh, watch the girls, and Anna and I will go to the theater and see a movie because it's somebody else's turn to perform, right? Like I'm doing a radio show, a podcast, writing columns. You're you're producing a ton of content. Doesn't it feel good to you sometimes just to sit back and see somebody else's work? Oh yeah, absolutely. I I wish I had more more time for it, but uh, it's it's great and and uh, even better when I don't doze off in the middle of the theater, right? Do you Every think? Let me ask you this: Do you think Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan if he doesn't encounter Nike? 
No, I think that that was crucial to the whole cultural impact he had, right? Uh, I mean, you can compare him to other great athletes from that era. And, you know, a lot of the difference, I think, is in the Nike Association, those commercials, the Air, Jordan Brand. Uh, that was, you know, that ch- it changed everything, really, about sports marketing and, and sports branding. At, at the time... People may remember this who are around in, you know, the 80s. You may remember the the craze that, that Reebok created around jazzercise and aerobics and everything that was going on at the time. And Reebok had really made inroads into the sneaker world. And people were wearing Reebok and wearing them socially, not just to, to be in the gym. And so I think Nike, you know, you got to give Phil Knight and his team credit. And I'm told this was largely Phil that he recognized that, you had to tap into athletes and their personal brands and their personalities. And Jordan was just such a perfect marriage as, is, you know, Nike was developing the air soul. They came up with air Jordan. They pitched Jordan. I haven't seen the film, but I've talked to Nike executives over the years who say that, you know, Hey, this was a big development in, you know, Nike going all in with one athlete at the time. Of course they had Charles Barkley and some other people in that same class, but they went all in, and then Wilner subsequently, uh, a guy named Fred Schreier became the the Nike's um, you know sports marketing arm, and they actually launched an agency within Nike that would handle the endorsement campaigns. It was the Nike Sports Management Division in the early '90s, and what they were afraid of was Bo Jackson and some others had, and Michael Jordan had really gone out and exploded, and Nike had poured into building their brand and. And then you had like Jordan off doing a Hanes underwear commercial and Phil Knight didn't like that. He was like, hey, we we helped build your brand. We don't want you associated with underwear. Like we're okay with McDonald's. We're okay with Gatorade, but not underwear. And so Fred Schreier, who was the director of sports marketing at Nike, founded the Nike Sports Management Division. And he became sort of the internal agent for Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, Jerry Rice, Ken Griffey Jr., Jordan, and what they did is they said, hey, we'll give you a guarantee of certain other endorsements, but we want to control what else you do. It's really forward-thinking stuff. It's almost like the collectives. Yeah, that is. I thought, um, what was their commercial, the the firm they used, was it Weldon and Kennedy? Yeah, like yeah Wyden and Kennedy. Wyden and Kennedy, Wyden and Portland Kennedy. agency, really forward-thinking. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, I, I've thought about this every once in a while. It's kind of an alternate universe deal. What happens if Phil Knight goes to Oregon State? Yeah, different. I mean, Oregon State's profile is Nike U. There's a swoosh on the on the front lawn. And, you know, Oregon has benefited in a lot of ways. It's not just the billion dollars that Phil and Penny Knight have poured into Oregon. It's it's all that product testing. It's the uniforms. You know, people don't know, but Knight is, and his wife have been uh, supportive of Oregon State and Portland State and others in the state, in addition to Stanford, um, you know, where he got his MBA. But they've been supportive at Oregon State. When baseball coach Pat Casey was ready to leave for Notre Dame, it was it was Phil Knight who swooped in and said, what do you need to keep him here? And, and helped Oregon State, you know, keep their baseball coach after he'd won national championships. It is one of those interesting things, you know, or what if Phil Knight had not had gone to Washington or Washington State and and how it would have changed so much of of college sports and maybe even pro sports in the West. Yeah. And and think about all the universities in the Pac-12 that are probably looking around going, hey, uh, 
when we do entrance admissions, what are we looking for? Are we looking for obviously diversity and you want to bring in a class that's good, you know, that merits entrance to your university, but you're probably also looking for visionary people, right? Who can go out and become those donors of the future that, you know, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, and Utah and others have, have cultivated over the years. Do you think at this point, Phil is what, 85, 86? Yeah. He's got, he's just, he just wants a national championship, right? Is that, is that pretty much it for him? Yeah. And I think, I think there's some pressure on Oregon right now with his age to give him a return on that event. I think, I think that's why the college football playoff access matters so much to Oregon versus maybe some other things that would matter to, you know, if they had a 50 year old donor that was involved in, in the, in the equation. Getting in there to win the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that certainly makes sense. I, it makes sense. The access pieces is, is overlooked a lot, I think, in talking about realignment and all that. What did you, uh, what do you think of the uh, San Diego, little San Diego State run there? Yeah. I think it's a great segue because, you, you know, we talk about CFP expansion and look at what happened at the NCAA tournament, right? You had the number 17 overall seed in the tournament, San Diego State against the number 13 overall seed, UConn. I know they were a four and a five, but those were their overall seeds by the selection committee. Plan for the national championship. I thought it was great. I think it was better than seeing the same old, same old in the final four. Florida Atlantic being there uh, was remarkable. And I, I thought it was good for the tournament. For anybody out there who says, oh, this wasn't reflective of the regular season. Well, what is, what's reflective of the regular season in baseball when the wild card wins it all? It's happened multiple times. Or in the NFL, when a team with six losses, who's not the one seed, gets in and, and catches lightning in a bottle and wins it all. That's what that's what the postseason is. It's supposed to determine, you know, who's the champion. And I thought the tournament delivered. How about you? Well, yeah, no, I do. And I think that the reason the college football playoff is expanding ultimately is to become more like the NCAA tournament. Not a lot more, but... It's too, you know, with four and football is so different than basketball, right? You don't necessarily, you're not going to get that, you know, you're not going to get a Florida Atlantic, right? Because they don't have 300 pound defensive linemen at Florida Atlantic that can, that can play with Alabama. It's a, there's a physical stature issue that it affects football that doesn't play the same role in basketball. But you know, the the college football playoff has become so centralized to Ohio State, Clemson, and the SEC, basically, that they needed to br expand it to, you know, create a little bit of a Cinderella feel, you know, at least for a round or two, and to draw in fans and schools from across the country to be more like the NCAAs, more, you know, just op open it wide up. And, and 12, I think, is a good number. But that's what, to me, that's what they're getting at is they want a little bit of that March Madness magic in the college football playoff. Yeah, and I don't think we need to see like a 11 seed beat a two seed when it goes to 12. But I do think you're right in that, like, you know, at least you're casting a wide enough net to capture – Anybody who has a reasonable argument to, to winning the college football playoff, right? Like, if we look at basketball, Alabama was the number one overall seed. Houston was two. Kansas was three. Purdue was four. You had two of those four teams that didn't get out of the opening weekend of the tournament. And that's remarkable to me. Now, what do you make of when, when you think it goes to 12, Wilner, when, when the college football playoff goes to 12, instead of this invitational four-team thing that is currently going on. Do you think the first-round buys 
are going to become a major talking point in that first tournament or what will be? Well, the first thing I, I think is that hosting an opening round game, so that's the 5-12 and so on. Those, you know, the 5-6-7-8 are going to host opening round games will be the biggest event in the history of that campus. And it will be an opportunity for those schools to gain exposure for every facet of the university. You know, uh, they're going to have events built around it. it it's going to be transformative for those schools. And I think that that's, that's part of the allure of, you know, the playoff and why th that piece is playing a role in determining realignment is because hosting a, hosting a game on campus is going to be so gigantic for, for the five. So I think, you know, you could make the case that that you want to host a game. You want to be a five seed. You want to host a game on campus and have a game in hand, then go play the, you know, the number four, which will have been sitting at home for a couple of weeks, go play them on a neutral site. It could be an advantage for the teams to play in the opening round. Yeah, I do think we'll see some upsets. I think you'll see five, six, seven, eight giving, you know, maybe not number one in a given year if it's a dominant team, but maybe two, three, four are vulnerable. And I mean, I don't know that we would get the outcomes that we have seen in title games. And I think that's good. At least we'll have the feeling that this was settled on the field. Let me ask you, because we're talking a little bit about the NCAA tournament and the transition, San Diego State gets to the title game. Let's talk about the San Diego State effect, Wilner. Your takeaways in watching San Diego State and in the background, potential expansion of the Pac-12 involving the Aztecs. Yeah, I mean, well, first watching them play, I mean, they th those guys are tough, right? They came back from double digits down a whole bunch. And it was kind of a stark contrast to how some of the Pac-12 teams uh, operated on the court and law, you know, stumbled in the second half. I just liked their grit, right? And you know, they almost lost their first game uh, of the whole tournament. And they, you gather momentum. The tournament is a self-generating momentum machine, right? San Diego State got that momentum going, kept going. They're tough. You know, they get some dogs on that team. And there was a lot of Pac-12 teams that don't. And and that I thought that was really interesting just in terms of a, a, a stylistic contrast. But I'm watching and I'm thinking, you know, they're back in the Pac-12 presidents into a corner, right? I mean, they they were worthy of getting a, getting invitation before the tournament started. Uh, and basketball doesn't play the same role as football does. But the optics are the optics, don't you think? I mean, the, the, the Pac-12 would just look moronic if it doesn't add San Diego State. Yeah, it's. I think they were going in anyway because of the Southern California footprint. They've done so much academically and athletically to position themselves with abilities and other movements on campus. And I think they're a no-brainer. But I think, yeah, I think this is gravy. And this sort of greases the the gears, so to speak. It, and, and, I, and I thought you wrote beautifully about it. Like when you said, you know, it, the presidents can't mess this up. Like, this has become so obvious. And and the other thing that I was impressed with was just the response of the student body, the passion, the arena that was filled, uh, you know, and people lined up outside the gates as the team's playing. But people just wanted to be part of it at San Diego State and wanted to be in the arena. And I think that kind of enthusiasm uh, is the kind of energy that you want in the Pac-12 conference. Do you think that they would only add San Diego State? I think there's a chance of it. Uh, I mean, they, they don't need to. They don't need to be in an even number, and they don't need to have 12 to be eligible for the playoff. You only need six members to in the Power Five to get that automatic uh, qualifier. So, 
they're okay if they go to 11. You know, the Big Ten did it when they added Penn State once upon a time, and they held tight at 11. So I wouldn't be surprised if the presidents and chancellors say, look, this is the only no-brainer. We're going to go to 11, and then let's wait and see on SMU and the others, and, and maybe you wait for the next cycle. But the wild card to me with that SMU or others is what are those others willing to do to get in the conference? Are they willing to buy their way in? Are they willing to take no distribution in the couple first couple of few years? And then ultimately, Wilner, the TV partners, isn't that the part of the isn't that the vote that counts the most? I mean, if the TV partners say, hey, we want Dallas Fort Worth or we want Colorado State to pair with Colorado. All of a sudden, if you're the Pac-12, you're sort of doing what TV wants you to do. Yeah, I mean, you are. I don't know. You know, it'll be interesting to see whether the the numbers pencil out enough for the TV partners to really affect the decision because i think that a lot of this is not about you know it's not like adding usc and you're all of a sudden going to get a whole bunch more money you know the every every potential candidate is has a little bit more nuance to their their case right i look at san diego state and they are they're kind of a here and now right it's we got to get we got to maintain our presence in southern california we don't want the big tw- San Diego State to be in the Big Twelve. Their basketball product could help us immediately, right? Because they'd come in as no worse, probably than the second best basketball program. They're they're a here and now. SMU is the opposite. SMU to me is the longer play. It's well, what could SMU be in twenty eight, twenty nine? After several years in the Pac twelve with their donors, they got a ton of you know very wealthy donor base private school. They can do whatever they want with their money. They're like USC. They could just plow money into into football and they don't have to care what anybody else thinks on campus. So SMU is a longer term play. It's a chip for the late part of the decade when the Pac-12 is going to go back to the negotiating table when when things are going to be changing again. San Diego State is a chip for now. SMU is a chip for later. I tend to agree with that. I, I was told by one of the persons who's in the room for the CEO group meetings that they would first vet academics and cultural fit and geography, and then they would pivot to the media partners and say, you know, do any of these, and again, it was four candidates that they were supposedly looking at, and do any of these four add value? And if they add value, uh, I was told there would be an invitation. But, you know, it has to be no-brainer value in my mind, and especially if it's SMU, because I think they're going to be there in five or seven years. And, you know, maybe maybe the outlook, the smart thing to do if you're one of the presidents or chancellors is to say, look, we really like USMU, but we need to see what you do in the next five to seven years to better position your football program and your basketball program for success. Do what San Diego State has done in, you know, with Snapdragon Stadium and the investment they that they have made in football and in men's basketball. And I think all of that is on the table at this point. Well, the value too, though, is will depend on what those schools, like you said, how much are they willing to come in for? I mean, if SMU is willing to come in at a quarter share for a couple of years, you know, then then that could change how the the valuation is is calculated, and also the number of games. And we've talked about this too, right? It's an it's an inventory issue at at some level, right? I mean, if they want, if there's a, a package of games on the negotiating table for Friday nights. You know, uh, you want to have 12 because you got to play more games. If you're going to have a weekly Friday night game, you don't want every team playing playing on Friday four times a season. When, when do you expect 
news on this front? Or or do you have a sense right now? People keep asking me, how long? What will we hear first? I sort of think we're going to get a leak on the expansion news before the media rights news because they, they walk hand in hand so much. But what do you expect? I kind of have given up thinking what thinking about the timing, right? I mean, we heard Washington State President Kirk Schultz told me in, uh, was that middle of February, you know, February 20, 22nd, right in there, that he thought middle of March, late March, uh, and and then nothing. And we've had other presidents say probably soon, next couple of weeks, nothing. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like if it's not done in the next two or three weeks, that they may just wait and and see, you know, have this thing take take a, a couple more months at this point, right? Because as long as the there's no option for the four corner schools or for Washington or Oregon, they can wait. The the issue with waiting is if one of those schools gets, you know, gets anxious and jumps before seeing a deal on the table. But if they're they're fully committed to waiting for a deal, then then they could they could drag this into April or, I mean, into May or June. I, if I'm San Diego State, I don't want that. I need to recruit right now no. knowing that I'm in the Pac-12. So if I'm San Diego State and Pac, the Pac-12 takes that 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 viewpoint on it, I'm going to pivot and, and I'm going to reach out to the Big 12 and say, hey, uh, I need to talk to you, if only to create leverage. I, I, I told and by sources at San Diego State that they, if all things are equal, they much prefer being in the Pac-12. They've long coveted that. Um, I, I think that's where this ends up, but I'm just thinking about how this plays out. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think they should wait, uh, and I don't think that's the most likely uh, scenario, but it certainly is something we can't dismiss at this point, given given where we are, right? I mean, they've said all along, if USC and UCLA had not left, then they would have negotiated a negotiated a media deal in the first quarter of 2023 to start in the summer of 2024. This would have been the natural period of time, but they would have been coming out of the first quarter likely with a deal. If you think back to 2011, they announced that $3 billion deal with ESPN and Fox in May of 2011. Uh, so they got it you know, 13, 14 months before it was supposed to kick in. So we're kind of we're starting to get to the end of the window, the closing of the window that would have naturally occurred if USC and UCLA hadn't left. So that's why I think it's got to be pretty soon. Yeah. And I and I keep thinking, you know, I, I've said all along, you know, the Pac-12 needs to say something. They need to come out. I think they've, they've mishandled different parts of this from a PR standpoint or marketing standpoint. But I just feel like they need victories now. And I think ultimately there's so much disinformation that is circulated in the last eight months, it's just become laughable at different points. But I, you know, I think part of the reason why I want some news is the same reason why fans in the footprint want news. They just want it behind them so we can all move on to spring football and, and the, you know, the college football preseason and what should be a big season for the Pac-12 with five teams that are likely to be, uh, you know, to be ranked. But, but don't, don't you think San Diego State, in a way, assuming that they take advantage of it was a victory. I mean, it's not a Pac-12 team, but it it has a it's has a a huge ripple effect to the perception of the Pac-12 with this expansion process, don't you think? Yeah, and, and I, I 100% think so. And you know, but I I keep thinking that 
you know, just the brand damage to the Pac-12 that has happened in the last eight months is uh, enough of a reason. But again, you know, if they come out of this with a deal and they add San Diego State and maybe SMU and uh, they have football season and their number is above the Big 12's 31.6 million per year distribution, I think the Pac-12 in the end is going to look back and go, what were you guys all worried about in and the Big 12 will go, hey, they traded distribution for dollars. And, and you know, that'll be the narrative there. And everybody will go off to bicker over who won that. But uh, in the end, I think this conference is going to stick together. And I think it's going to be okay. Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. I'm with the great John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, as we are on every uh, episode of this podcast. Appreciate that you listen to it. You can read Wilner at pac12hotline.com. Before we go, Wilner. Spring football is upon us. Do you have a couple of things in spring football that you're interested in learning in the next couple few weeks? Well, I certainly will be watching the Colorado spring game like everybody else on ESPN, right? I mean, that to me is something that certainly stands out is the Deion Sanders hire and what it's done for Colorado to this point. Last year, ESPN broadcast one spring game, USC. This year, ESPN is broadcasting one spring game, Colorado. What did both do? They hired big-time, high-profile coaches. And it is clear that uh, some of the schools in the conference are getting getting the message that you really have got to invest. But beyond uh, beyond Dion's debut on, on uh, ESPN, you know, to me, it's not as, you know, uh, the quarterback situation has such an impact on how you view the offseason and the issues. And so many schools are set at quarterback that that is almost off the table completely. And it gives the whole thing kind of a, a little bit more of a routine feel. I mean, I recognize Stanford and, and what uh, UCLA have, uh, have quarterback competitions. Utah's got some uncertainty. ASU's got one competition, but generally speaking, if you're set at quarterback, everything else feels secondary. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, there is a question at Oregon State. You know, DJ Uyunglele is there, came in the transfer portal from Clemson. And the foregone conclusion, everyone assumes that DJ is going to start. Um, they've got a freshman, a four-star freshman named Aiden Childs, who everybody's telling me is more accurate, throws a better ball than DJ, but he's a freshman. And I don't expect that Jonathan Smith's going to start him, and I don't think he's in a hurry, but I think there's a little bit of a competition at Oregon State with Ben Gulbranson coming back. He was a great leader on the field. And then DJ coming in, I I, I still think he's going to start, but I want to see him in the spring game. I want to see that he's got the accuracy. I want to see that he's improved a little bit. Uh, people who've seen him in uniform tell me he's just massive. They're not used to seeing a quarterback of that physical stature at Oregon State. So I think Jonathan Smith's got a, a different kind of QB there. And then at Oregon... Uh, you know, Dan Lanning, can the defense have some kind of uh, – can the defense have an identity this year? I just don't think they had a, much of an identity. So trying to figure out defensively, can Oregon take a step forward? Now, offensively, they look like they're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, Washington and Washington State have questions, I think. You know, we want to see what can Washington add to Michael Penix Jr. as a as a weapon. You know, can they, can they install a, a run game? Can they play better defense? Uh, and then at Washington State, I still think they're sneaky, and I think Cam Ward could take steps forward in the spring that you know we didn't see last year. I, I was a little disappointed with Cam Ward during the regular season last year. I I, I want to see you know how much has he improved, and then I'm still like I I put this out the other day. I I like Utah. 
If somebody asks me who's going to win the Pac-12, I feel inclined to say Utah right now because they've won back and until somebody knocks the king out, they're the king. But Cam Rising in that knee injury, that's a major factor. And what will Utah look like early next season if Rising isn't ready to go and at 100%? At what point does he get back in the lineup? And Because he is their leader. Yeah. I, the DJ thing is interesting in Corvallis because transfer, it's a, it's a second or an added dimension if you're the head coach, right? Because if he if it works out well with him, that opens the door to Oregon State for other potentially for other high profile transfers. They see he's going there and he's thriving. There's a better chance that they're going to follow. If he goes there and it doesn't work out, then you know other guys may think, ah, Oregon State's not for me. It's kind of like what the Michael Penix situation has opened up for Washington for in terms of getting quarterbacks in the future. Right. That's the the portal talent follows talent. Right. And if they see those guys thriving, the transfers thriving, it you're more likely to get other transfers down the road. And I think that every head coach has got to factor in, uh, you know, what is this going to how is it going to play in the portal with guys in the future? you know, how I how I work with my quarterback in this particular instance. We saw teams that use the portal well win big in both the men's and women's NCAA tournament. LSU on the women's side, four of the five starters uh, transfers. And uh, on the men's side, it was, you know, San Diego State had eight seniors and four juniors on that team. I mean, that was a very experienced team, uh, heavy with transfers. Do you think we'll see the teams playing deep into the 12-team playoff, leaning hard into the portal, very you know, with 23, 24, 25-year-old players on the roster? Boy, good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it'll be, you know, there's there's the question of playing time, immediate playing time available for the for the powerhouse programs, right? I mean, it, how much uh, how much time will ha- Alabama be able to offer, Ohio State be able to offer transfers? Those guys, those high-profile guys want to play right away. And so then you get into, you know, it's it's the whole talent cycle. Who's turning pro, right? Uh, that that has a whole football so different than basketball in in those respects. I think that we won't necessarily see uh, the same impact transfers have on the on the football front, especially at those powerhouse programs. Could could a uh, you know a team the eleven seed have a bunch of transfers? Maybe, but I I don't know that it, Alabama and L, you know. Ohio State and those schools are going to really change what they've been doing because of the playoff. Yeah, and I think in basketball, too, where, you know, you've got a rotation that's eight or nine deep, you get three transfers, or in, you know, Arizona State's case, Bobby Hurley had six transfers and did a really nice job with it. You can make over your team. Like, you can get good in a hurry. You need a lot more in football, and you need it at key positions like quarterback. Well, you need it, and you need it at positions that aren't found in the population. That's the biggest difference, right? Basketball, there's a lot of guys that are 6'7", 200 pounds, that can shoot three-pointers at a 38% rate. I mean, they're all over college basketball, both in the football-playing schools and in, you know, in the Big East, right? But in football, if you're going to win that playoff, you got to have 300-pound defensive linemen, and you got to have a bunch of them, and they're, they just aren't there aren't very many of those guys who can run and the ones that they, that do exist, they go to the top schools, 
They play three or four years. They turn pro. You don't necessarily see those elite guys moving around, and there's just not very many. That football is so different. That's why the Pac-12, you know, in a lot of ways has more headwinds in football than it does in basketball because there just aren't as many of those guys in the population of the Pacific time zone as there are in, you know, the Midwest and the Southeastern quadrant of the country. Well put. Uh, now, all right, before we leave, Wilner, I'm going to give you three movies that I want you to watch, whether you're on a plane or you're in your living room or you get to a theater. Um, Hit me. Here are my three movies that John Wilner needs to see, you know, between now and summertime. I'm going to, I'll start it with, of course, Everything, everywhere, all at once. Big Oscar winner, and uh, everybody knows it's a great movie. Again, it's not necessarily for your kids. Some of the weird stuff that goes on in that movie, but it's worth you seeing. Watch it sometime when you and your wife are on a weekend, and you're up late, and you go, "Hey, what are we gonna do?" Everything, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once on your list. I'm gonna go with the Fablemans, the Steven Spielberg sort of semi-autobiographical film. I think strong message being that you're a content creator yourself. I think it's relatable. And then, I've heard of that. And then a man called a man named Otto with Tom Hanks. Um, again, it's got some stuff in it, but you're going to leave it uh, looking at people differently. And I think it will impact how you see the world. And so those are my so three. Did you see? Three picks. Did you see all the Oscar nominated movies? Not all of them, but normally I try to, and I use that as an excuse to go to the movies all the time with my wife and we'll go we'll, we'll sometimes go uh you know we'll just make a point of going once a week and get a sitter you got to commit to it your kids can still get a sitter i don't you know i know they're older and they might go hey we don't want somebody over but it's okay you, know, you can you can go see a movie <laughs> did you agree with the oscar selections no i think there's a lot of uh there's a lot of insider trading going on with the oscars i i i thought tom hanks Again, man called Otto or named Otto. I don't know what it is, but it, really good. And I thought the Fablemans would get something, and they got they both got skunked. And but I think those are re- two really good movies. And back me up, listeners, if you've seen them, tweet at me or give me your movie suggestions, and let's send Wilner on a uh, summer movie tour. That that would be great. Yeah, good ideas. I have uh, uh, I I definitely heard of Fablemans, so I will uh, I'll make that number one on the on the watch list. He is the great John Canzano at johncanzano.com. I am John Wilner, pac12hotline.com and the Bay Area News Group. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. As always, uh, please like the podcast. Please subscribe. We appreciate all your support. Thanks very much.